Hello, and welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York, that believes wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's sermon. Lord, we do thank you. I mean, (laughs) I've been following you for a while. And I still have these moments where I'm overcome with what your gospel really means. That I really don't have to put on a mask before you. In fact, I have to take it off. And I'm terrified to take off my mask because of what you might see, because I don't live in such a way that removes my mask in front of people. But the good news is right there in the depths of our brokenness, where we feel so unworthy. You are kissing us, you are welcoming us, you are healing us. That is the good news of the God who became flesh. And there's still parts of me that can't believe that this is true, that this is the story of the world. And so I ask, Lord, that you would continue to plant the seeds of your gospel, of your good news into the hearts of every single person here. Regardless if they're here and they know you and they've responded and said yes to you some, at some point in their past or if they know nothing of who this Jesus is, they're like, what is going on? Would you speak to every person today and remind them that you are for them? It's in your name we pray, amen. All right. So if you weren't with us last week, we kicked off a new series, a summer series, that we are titling Storytime with Jesus. Storytime with Jesus. And what we're doing is we're going to be taking the the month of July and August and examining some of the parables that Jesus told. Parables are the primary device that uh, Jesus of Nazareth used uh, to teach people. It was his pedagogical device. I love saying that word, pedagogical. I say it as often as I can. Um, but the parables are, are basically at, at their simplest, if you distill them down, they're riddles. They're dark sayings. They are, as one scholar says, weapons of controversy, or as C.H. Dodd put it, at its simplest, the parable is a metaphor or a simile drawn from nature or common life that arrests the hearer by its vividness or strangeness and leaves the mind in sufficient doubt about its precise application to tease it into active thought couple things. The parable is a metaphor or a simile drawn from nature or common life. The words Jesus uses, everyone understands. He doesn't use words like pedagogical. That's his way of convicting me right there. He uses words and concepts that everyone understands, but he uses them in such a way that they're they're flipped a little bit. Uh, They arrest the hearer with their vividness and their strangeness, thus leaving the mind in doubt as to how to respond. It's a very common concept, but he sort of flips the pieces around and now you're left thinking, well, what do I do with this? So last week we talked about sort of the the meta parable, the parable about parables, about the sower who goes out and he throws seed over all types of soil. And in essence, the point that we went after was um, that the difference between the good soil and the other soils is simply a matter of response. 
The crowds who are hearing the parables, they have not responded and enter into a relationship with Jesus yet. The disciples have. Therefore, the disciples are given the gift um, of the secrets of the kingdom. And so I want to continue today with a parable about the kingdom. And then one quick point uh, before we jump into that. Um, as we said last week, we have this new component to our services. We have a phone number. We put up that phone number. And we have a YouTube channel. Um, woo, YouTube. But um, that is an anonymous phone number. Save that. Go ahead and pull out your phones and save that into your contact list as Hope Brooklyn. Uh, one thing that we're going to start doing is during the sermons, as questions come up uh, that you want to ask, text them in. Text them into this number. We will compile them and we'll sort of pull together what's a, a common theme, a common question from it, and then we'll make a little short video. Uh, don't expect anything of artistic quality. It's going to be very short, unedited, but it's going to get at uh, presenting a, a possible answer to the questions that are asked on Monday. And if you do not get our emails, fill out that connection card and drop that off in the What's Next table because um, the video will be put in that email. Uh, so we launched that this last week. We sent out an email with the, the tentative answer. I love it. I love Hope Brooklyn because y'all went straight for the jugular with the first question, asking about the nature of free will. So I'm like, <laughs> sure, let's, let's, let's ta uh, tackle in six minutes time what the church has been working on for the last 2,000 years. Um, but I'll do the best I can. No question is off limits. Cool. So save that number. Um, also, go to our YouTube channel, subscribe. Just type in Hope Brooklyn. Subscribe to it. You'll get updates on stuff. It's going to be great. All right. Today's parable. One verse. Can I get an amen for that? Yes, one verse. Matthew 13, verse 33. <clears throat> he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed in with three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed in with three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. Well, that seems pretty open and shut, does it not? Yeast, it's a microscopic organism. It starts very, very small, but the presence of which is like a virus. It infects, it will spread into the entire dough. It cannot be stopped. The kingdom can't be stopped. Open and shut, we're done. Good job, Jesus, we figured it out. And though that's true, and that's some of the, that's some of the beauty about uh, parables is that there are multiple levels, multiple layers of interpretation and understanding. And that is true. The kingdom can't be stopped. The kingdom, like yeast, is spreading through the cosmos. That doesn't arrest us with its strangeness, does it? There's nothing strange about it. There's nothing vivid that sort of captivates our imaginations and leaves us in doubt as to how to tease this out, what to do. And so there must be more there. We got to dig a little deeper. And lucky for you, I spent the time this week digging. So you're welcome. There are three observations I want to point out that maybe will get at some of this spade work of what's going on. And the first is this concept of yeast, zume in Greek. Now, yeast is the backbone of bread making, which every first century listener um, who's listening to Jesus speak will have known what to do and how it functions. You and I, we're a little bit of a disadvantage because you and I, we go to Trader Joe's, we go to Key Foods and we buy already yeast laden bread. 
It is pre-packaged. It's been pre-yeasted. It's already spread through the whole thing. We got it. But in, in the ancient world, if you made bread uh, with yeast, it was a little bit more of a process. And it began with this thing called a starter. My mom actually has a homemade bread starter that's been passed down in our family. And I kid you not, it is the best sourdough bread you have ever tasted. The French toast is incredible. But here's the thing about starter. You have to keep it alive. As anyone knows who makes homemade bread, you have to keep starter alive. It's very simple. It's a combination of water and flour or some sort of starch. My mom uses potato flakes. I'm not going to tell you the other secret ingredient because that's in our family, Joyce family tradition. No, I'm just kidding. I'll tell you if you ask. Um, but she has to feed the starter. That's what they call it. You have to feed the starter. So you pour potato flakes in water and then the yeast spores within the flakes or the flour begins to activate and it begins to eat on the starch and it begins to create this very bubbly mixture and engage in a process of, catch this, decomposition before the yeast is ready to take out a spoonful of that, put it in the dough, and make bread. So the process of bread making begins with the first step of decomposition. And as any first century bread maker would know, that decomposition process creates a very sour smell. So catch this, when you are creating bread, you are making something which arguably is the most exquisite smell known to humankind. When fresh baked bread comes out of an oven, right? The very first step in that process is death that creates a very sour smell. In order to produce a delicious aroma, it starts with the process of death. That's interesting. Now this image, this metaphor, the kingdom of heaven is like yeast. It's further complicated by the fact that that word yeast is used 11 more times in the New Testament. And in no other time, no other instance, is it used in a positive light. It's usually a negative metaphor. So we have examples where Jesus goes, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Beware of their yeast, which uh, we're told refers to their teaching, their way of life, sort of uh, emulating them because it, it seems like they know what they're talking about. It seems they represent God, but in fact, it is a process, a yeast that will spread through your whole life and lead to even more death. So yeast itself as a, as a, as a metaphor is an ambivalent one. So when Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like yeast, a first century listener is going, okay, well, the first step in yeast is that it produces death. And also any other time I've heard yeast compared to something, uh, it's not in a positive light. What is Jesus getting at? What is Jesus getting at? Because yeast, the first thing it's gonna do is kill, is decompose. And if I'm listening, I'm wondering, well, is it gonna be a good decomposition? Is it gonna be death? that leads to the wonderful smell of bread or is it gonna be death that leads to more death? But the kingdom of God, friends, starts with death. The kingdom of God starts with death. Second observation, we have the presence of a secretive woman. Now you're like, whoa, 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 where'd you get the secretive part? That wasn't there in the text. Hold that question, don't text it in, I'm gonna answer it, all right? First, we need to talk about the presence of, of the, the character, the protagonist, the woman. Now, it's not uncommon 
that Jesus includes a woman as a character in one of his parables, his stories. He does that often, especially in Luke's gospel. We have the begging widow who's constantly demanding the judge for justice. We have the woman who loses a coin and she searches the house until she finds it. We have the five wise and the five unwise virgins. Um, So it's not uncommon that Jesus has a female character. What we have to ask ourselves though, is why did he do it? Because nothing is lost by having no character whatsoever. Jesus could have just as easily said, the kingdom of heaven is like yeast that was mixed in three measures of flour. That he included the woman means there's there's a purpose behind her presence. She means something. She contributes something to the story, to the riddle. And if you're a first century listener, much like the yeast, uh, the, the feminine imagery is very ambivalent. You're not exactly sure if it's good or bad. We have examples in Jewish scriptures that has very positive feminine imagery. So examples would be woman wisdom in the book of Proverbs. So in Proverbs chapter eight, um, the author likens wisdom, which says, go after wisdom, be wise to a woman in the streets calling out named woman wisdom. Um, You have uh, the feminine presence of the spirit of God. So in the Hebrew language of which the Old Testament was written, the word for spirit is ruach, which is a feminine word. So the feminine presence of the spirit of God, you have characters like Miriam, who's sister of Moses, and Deborah, who was a ruler over Israel before Israel was given a king. So you have positive female images, but you also have very negative images about women. And that is pretty self-explanatory, but one example comes from uh, the document Ben Sirach, uh, which is about around 200 BC, And essentially he has a line from it goes, from a woman, sin had its beginning and because of her, we all die. And he's referencing Eve, uh, which was a common held belief that Eve was deceived by the serpent first in the story of Adam and Eve. So all that to say is that for a first century listener, for Jesus to say the kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into the three measures of flour, three measures of dough. There's a reason why he included her, and like the yeast, there's an ambivalent um, connotation. Can we trust her? Can we not trust her? Is she one of those good women, or is she one of the women who takes after Eve? What's going on? And the reason why I added that that language of secretive is because of the verb that's included in the story. Your Bible might say mix. She took the yeast and she mixed it into the dough. But in fact, uh, if you read it in the Greek language, the original language, there's a little bit more going on. The word, in fact, is encrypto, encrypto, which comes from the root crypt, crypt, which means to hide. And maybe you already see it, but to encrypt something is to encrypt something. It's the same thing. So this woman is encrypting the yeast inside the dough. To encrypt something is to hide a meaning inside a message, right? Or sorry, to hide a message inside a code. You're encrypting a code. So you have this code, um, but it's hidden. Its meaning is hidden. And you've got to decode it. You've got to decipher it to understand what the message is. This woman is taking this yeast and encrypting it, hiding it inside of the dough. And the tool she uses 
has uh, an ambivalent history. Is it good yeast or bad yeast? The presence of her herself has an ambivalent history. Can we trust her or not? And we know that upon its activation, the very first step of yeast is that it produces death. Now you're feeling the suspense, aren't you? Now it's getting a little strange. What is Jesus saying? What is he saying? I'm nervous. <laughs> Can we trust the kingdom of heaven? What's it gonna do? The very last observation is in the unit of measurement and it's a pretty self-explanatory one. We're told that she uh, encrypts, she hides the yeast into three measures of dough. Now three measures, we're like, oh cool, three, great. Uh, that is not like three cups. <laughs> three measures, as scholars point out, is more like 40 to 60 pounds of dough. It is an extravagant amount, a gargantuan amount. Uh, the idea meaning that there is gonna be a large scale consequence to this action. She's not either feeding or poisoning a household. She's feeding or poisoning an entire town. There is a large-scale consequence to what she's doing. And the kingdom of heaven is that. An actor with a dubious public persona, an agent that is a metaphor for both good and evil, and that will always produce death first, leaving us in suspense and doubt. Will it be a death that leads to life or a death that leads to more death? But it's gonna produce a putrid, disgusting smell and a message that is being encrypted in secret and will affect the entire world. Suspense, <laughs> that's a parable. Is this a good thing that the kingdom of heaven is coming? And that's the end, Jesus stops there. What do we do with this? Well, there's some echoes and some allusions in this story, which if you're a first century listener, might be drawn up. Especially that last detail, the three measures of flour. Because that's such an extravagant and weird number, a weird amount, um, you don't see it often in Jewish history. In fact, you see it maybe two other times and one of them is a really, really important story. A story that most Jewish listeners, of which those would be listening to Jesus, they would have remembered this story. It would have, it would have drawn something in their minds. It would have come up. And it comes from Genesis 18, all the way back in the beginning. So brief recap uh, of Genesis, or maybe just the story of God. <laughs> so God decides to call a man named Abraham. And he goes to Abraham and he goes, hey, from you are gonna come descendants more numerous than stars in the sky. I'm going to make a people through you. And the purpose of this people is that they will be a light to the nations. They will be my people so as to serve all people. They're gonna be my instrument, the vehicle that I use to bring salvation to all humankind. And from Abraham, he says, from you is gonna begin this story, this people. There was just one problem with Abraham and his wife, Sarah, is that they were very, very old and they had no children. <laughs> well, how's that gonna happen? So Abraham's like, that's cool, God. Like, I, I received this, I, I am your servant. We don't have a son, we don't have an heir. What are you gonna do? That was in Genesis 12. We go through a couple chapters, we get to, uh, God keeps reappearing and saying, I'm, you're gonna have a son. 
Um, you're gonna, your descendants are going to outnumber uh, the stars in the sky. And then in Genesis 18, we hear this very memorable story of which all the first century listeners would recognize. Basically, uh, Abraham is standing by his tent because they're a nomadic people. So he's standing by his tent and he sees three visitors pass in the distance. And he runs up to them because Abraham was known. And this is also fascinating. Uh, throughout antiquity, throughout history, the main virtue ascribed to Abraham, well, maybe two main ones. Faith, yes, that's, faith is a big one, but also his hospitality. He's known to be a person of immense hospitality which is interesting when we consider pretty much the essence of God is that he's made room in himself for others to be loved. But he sees three people running, or it's not running, he sees three people walking, he runs to them um, and he goes, you know, my lords, which is in term of endearment, will you come in? Can we make some food for you? Will you don't pass by without sharing a meal with us? And so the three visitors say, all right, sure, you can do that. And so he runs to the tent uh, where Sarah was, and he goes, quick, make three measures of flour, knead it, and make cakes. Three measures of flour, which again, if you're reading this story and you're hearing it, he's not feeding three people. He's feeding 300 people, <laughs> right? This is extravagant amount. And then on addition to, the, to the, the cakes that Sarah's making, he also kills some animals and makes some milk um, and does all that stuff. Uh, I clearly don't, wouldn't survive in the wilderness either. And, um, and he feeds these three visitors. Now, if you read that in the Hebrew language, you're like, okay, this is normal, right? This is, this is normal. You would hear that three measures illusion, but nothing more. But there's more going on. And a little historical context will bring that to light. So the Hebrew word for cake is ugat. Nothing special about that. But in the first century, in Jesus' time, most scholars believe uh, that the writers and the listeners didn't read the he their Bible, their scriptures in Hebrew anymore. They read it in Greek. In the same way that you and I in this space, we don't read the Bible in Hebrew or Greek anymore, which were the original languages. We read it in English. It's a translation. So in the first century, there was a translation of the Hebrew scriptures of the Jewish Bible, what we call the Old Testament, in Greek. It was called the Septuagint. So most scholars believe that's what the, the first century people were working with. That's how they read their scriptures. Now, here's what's fascinating about this story in Greek. Is when Abraham runs to Sarah and says, make three measures of flour, knead it, and make cakes. The Greek word translated for cakes is egg krufias. Which you can probably already see the root is the same thing as in crypto. It's the same thing. Sarah, a woman, is encrypting bread in a gargantuan amount of dough so as to feed a lot of people. There are illusions that Jesus is trying to entertain. Now, as I said, uh, Abraham and Sarah are very old. In this story, in chapter 18, there's a line, a very formal line, where we're told that it had ceased to be with Sarah as the manner of women, AKA she could not conceive anymore. Her womb was now dead. As they're eating, one of the visitors says to Abraham, 
your wife is going to give birth by this time next year. (laughs) And as the story goes, Sarah laughs in the tent. And not laughs like, oh, thank you, Lord, like cynically laughs. She laughs and goes, after all this time, now I get pleasure. (laughs) After my womb is finally dead, now I get a child. The story in Genesis 18 is the story of a miraculous, unexpected child. Life that comes after death. And we do know that she does give birth to a son named Isaac. And Isaac gives birth to two sons, Esau and Jacob. And from Jacob, he gives birth to 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. Why did I tell you that story? How is this all fitting together? I'm not sure if maybe um, um, story time with Jesus, I'll use like a story from my recent honeymoon for every single one, but it's working out that way. I told a story about Barcelona last week, and now I'm going to explain it with a story from Austria. (laughs) So Anna and I were in Austria for, for one stop on our honeymoon. And on one particular day, we were driving, driving through the Alps. Um, and they are beautiful. They are, they're not like when you're driving, you see mountains in the distance. It's like you're driving and the mountains are right here. And you're just going through tunnels underneath the mountains and their caves. And it's like you're right in the middle of the mountains. And it was a beautiful day. Um, we actually, on that day, we went skydiving, which was amazing. Um, and it was, it was wonderful. That night, we had one of those conversations, which if you're married, if you've been in a relationship, you know these conversations, those, those moments of intense fellowship. You know what I'm talking about? Um, and don't even remember where it starts, right? Like something comes up, you have a disagreement about something. Um, but Anna and I, because, you know, we want to be more mature adults, we caught ourselves early on. We saw how this conversation was spiraling. We saw how our passion was rising. And so we said, oh, let's take a step back. All right, let's see this in constructive light. Let's actually engage in a conversation and really sit and do the hard work of listening to one another and saying things that might offend one another but not taking it personally in the interest of making our marriage deeper and stronger and better, of really hearing each other. And so we spent the next couple hours doing just that. We sat and we listened and we repeated back in a process of active listening and we asked questions and we said, okay, this is what I'm hearing you're saying. And, and now here's what I, how we respond to it. And like, oh, okay, okay. And we said things that hurt, but we didn't take it personal because we knew the other person was reaching. We spent the next couple hours reaching, clawing, trying to, to empathize, to understand the other person. And by the end of it, we had gotten nowhere. Nowhere. <laughs> I'm going to tell by the laughs that you know what I'm talking about. And it was pretty hopeless feeling. It felt, if you will, a little bit like death. And the worst kind of death, right? The death that's like, I mean, some death we deserve it. And we know we deserve it. If our passion had gotten the best of us, if we just had devolved into screaming and yelling, well, that would make sense. But we work so hard to do it the right way. We worked so hard to see the other person and it didn't work. There was a death 
to, in a sense, our idealized vision of marriage. Maybe, it won't, maybe we won't ever be able to see or love the other person the way we want to. Maybe we won't ever have that. The next day, we woke up and we were gonna go hiking in the Alps again. And so we're driving into the Alps and we're in that, that emotional space that I just, the best way I can describe it is that exhausted sense of peace. You know what I'm talking about? Like after a very long day where you've worked super hard and you wake up and you're exhausted, but you're at peace, right? And it's not a peace that everything is right with the world, but it's a peace that you're alive and it's, it's okay. Um, so we're driving and we're driving through the Alps. We're in that exhausted peace and we're listening to a band who we love called the Oh Hellos. And this song comes on and I'm not thinking about it. I'm just, um, just looking out the window because I can't drive stick and Anna can, um, which is, I got the better end of the deal driving through the Alps there. But, uh, and the song comes on and I'm gonna sing a little bit of it because I think there's power in music even though I can't sing. So maybe they'll balance each other out, but we'll see. Um, and it goes, I have made mistakes. I have made mistakes. I continue to make them. And the promises I've made, the promises I've made, I continue to break them. And all the doubts I faced, all the doubts I faced, I continue to face them. But nothing is a waste, nothing is a waste if you learn from it. The sun, it does not cause us. The sun, it does not cause us to grow. It is the rain that will strengthen, the rain that will strengthen your soul. It will make you whole. Oh, oh. And it's a lot of O's. It's a folk song. A lot of O's for a little bit. And I'm listening to that song. We're riding through the Alps and I'm in that place of exhausted peace. And out of nowhere, I break down into sobs. I'm just weeping. And I'm weeping because I'm staring at these mountains and I'm absolutely overcome with how beautiful they are. I am overcome with beauty. It's everywhere, friends. It's everywhere and it's all I can see beauty. The mountains are on fire with beauty. I look at Anna and all I can feel, it's just welling up inside of me, is that this is the most beautiful woman who I've ever known. It's just, it's everywhere. The beauty is all around. And I find my heart praying, God, please be who you say you are. Because if not, this beauty is all wasted. It's all wasted. A couple days later, I was reflecting on it. Like, why, what happened? And maybe you've had similar moments, even if you're not a Christian and would ascribe those moments to a creator, to God, to Jesus. Um, you've probably had similar moments of transcendence, right? Where you're overcome with a sense of joy or a sense of beauty or a sense of like, oh, this is so good. And I was reflecting on it, like what was that? Why could I not see it the day prior? I was in the same exact place, riding through the Alps. One day I can't see it. Nothing's overcoming me. The very next day, I'm weeping because it's so beautiful and it's all I can see. It's all I can see. And I was reading an essay by a physicist and he's more like a metaphysicist and he was examining the idea, does the world embody beautiful ideas? 
That was his question. Does the world, the physical world, embody beautiful ideas? And he was talking about how he was at a seminar. And the topic was really confusing, really confusing. And he and his friend got out of the, the seminar and they were sitting and they were discussing it. And they were like, that's just, it's so convoluted. If it's true, it should work like this. And they tried to write out a theory, an equation for it. And it wrote itself, he says. The equation just wrote itself. And they immediately knew that it had to be right because it was so simple and so beautiful and so elegant. And it was, it was the correct equation. And if you're in this room and you have any sort of artist, you've heard this before. All artists say a similar thing, that it's not them imposing their will on something. It's more trying to discover what's already there, trying to come out, right? Like it's, it, they're more the conduits where the idea is uh, getting through. Michelangelo's David is the best example. He's not trying to, to, to sculpt something. Something's already inside there. He's just trying to get the stuff out of the way. Basically getting at this idea that there is a beautiful idea there is a beautiful idea in the cosmos that is simple and elegant and it's there to be discovered. And he writes, our brains are attuned to the deep structure of the physical world in ways that we don't even, can't even begin to grasp. Our brains are attuned to the physical world, to the beauty at the core of the physical world that we can't even begin to grasp. And this question, I was reflecting on all this and what is this beautiful idea in the world? When we experience beauty, when it overcomes us, I think we're experiencing the creator. I think in that moment, our eyes have been opened and the tether between our brains and the core of the physical world is expressing itself. We're experiencing the creator. In a sense, we're experiencing the central encrypted message of God. The encrypted yeast is being decoded in that moment. And this is what I think is the single, central, beautiful idea in our cosmos. This is in the heart of our creator, and this is what we encounter in those moments where we're overcome with beauty. Simply this, though it deserves to die, instead it will live. Though it deserves to die, Instead, it will live. See, on the day prior, the day before Anna and I had that conversation, I couldn't see the beauty because in some sense, I didn't know that I don't deserve the beauty. I hadn't passed through death. I couldn't see the world because I didn't know in some sense, I don't deserve this world. I couldn't see Anna because in some sense, I didn't know I don't deserve Anna. And then we engage in this process of death this process of futility where we are working the hardest. We are putting forth our best efforts to reach the other person, to find them, to love them. And it amounted to nothing, a nothing. We got no closer to one another that night. And we tried so hard. After an evening of realizing how broken I am, how futile it is, experiencing death, riding around in this amazing world, it dawned on me that though it all deserves to die, though I deserve to die, because I, I realized how dead I was, how dead marriage is, how it can't be what we hope it is, though it all deserves to die, instead it will live. And I saw it everywhere. I saw the gift of life right in the middle of death. And in those moments of transcendence, even if you would not call yourself a Christian here, I, I ask you to consider 
when you have those moments of joy, is that not what you're expressing? Aren't you really saying it's too beautiful for me, right? In those moments of joy, I don't deserve this. And in a deep down way, that's what you're expressing. It's so, not objectively, it's so beautiful, but you know in those moments, I don't deserve to be here. I'm not worthy of this beauty. You are tapping in to the central message of the world that's embodied in the gospel. Though it deserves death, God has entered into that death and he's gonna give it life. He's gonna bring it back to life. That's the encryption, friends. That's the hidden message in the center of the gospel, in the center of Jesus, in the center of Abraham, in the center of the God of Israel, in the center of the world. Right smack in the middle of death, there is life. Right in the middle of a dead womb, a child grows. Right in the middle of a dead womb, a child grows. From a dead conversation, I saw the beauty hidden all around me. From a dead Jewish man hanging on a cross, life is offered to all humankind. When we are at the end of ourselves, when we realize that there's nothing in us that we can do to save this world or to save our loved ones or to save ourselves, nothing, right there, you will see the beauty of God. You will see God, which is why Jesus uses yeast and feminine imagery and the encryption that are so nerve-wracking images because we don't know if we can trust it. We don't know if we can trust the kingdom because the kingdom will produce death first. There will be a cross first. There will be a cross. In the same way that Paul says in Romans 8, all creation is yearning as in birth pangs. Like the image, the metaphor is everywhere. It's everywhere, Old New Testament. It's everywhere. It's, it's this image of a dead womb where a child grows, right in the middle of it. And you cannot see the kingdom, friends. You cannot see God unless you're willing to look at those dead places in your life. That is where he is. He's not in the places where you feel alive. He's right in the middle of those places where you have given up all hope. Right there, a child grows. Right there, the encrypted message of the world will begin to be decoded. Though it deserves to die, instead it will live. Though you deserve to die, you deserve to die, instead you will live. That is the gospel. And what I think we need more than anything, I'm gonna invite the, the worship team back up now. What I think we need more than anything right now is a recovery of a sense. I never thought I'd say this word, uh, advocate for this concept, but what we need, what the church can offer the world right now is a recovery of a sense of sin. And not in a way that says, you're sinners, we're not, but in a way that enters in the world and says, I, I am the most broken human being. In the way that Paul writes in his letters and goes, here is a true statement. Jesus Christ came to save sinners of whom I am the worst. What we need, what you need more than anything, friends, and I say this with all the love in my heart, you need to know how much you deserve to die. <laughs> yeah, that's bold, right? You need to know how futile your best efforts are at being 
a real human being. And I know you're giving it all you got. Anna and I gave it all we got too. We gave it all we got and we'll continue to pursue one another. But what you need is a recognition that your best strength still leaves, leaves the world wanting, leaves you wanting. Cannot give you the happiness or the joy or the satisfaction you want, that you really feel like you deserve. And at that point, in those dead places, at that point, the mystery, the encrypted message of the yeast in the kingdom of heaven will begin to reveal itself because it's already hidden and it's all around us. It's in the world, it's in our systems, it's in ourselves, it's hidden and it's all around us. And it's, it's there to be called out if we're willing to start with that first step, that though it deserves death, though it's already corrupted and dying, instead, God will make it live. But it has to start from us saying, I, I am the most broken. I am destroying the world. I don't care enough about the world. I don't care enough about you. I am riddled by sin. And from that place, we'll begin to see the child who grows within. We'll begin to see the kingdom and the beauty all around us. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I know that this is a, uh, it's a tough message. I'm advocating for us to look at our pain to look at those places in our lives where we feel so dead or we feel like it's our fault or we feel like we're, we're so helpless, we can't do anything and we're trying our best. We're trying our best to, to bring healing, to fix it, to do it right and it's just not working. It's not working. Would you speak to your people and tell them that in fact, that's the first step of bread making. That's the yeast being activated. That's the sour smell that you smell. And I know you're, you're worried, can you trust it? You can. It will be a process of decomposition first. It will be a process of death, but that's the first step to receiving life. Lord, in a world that we live in right now, which is just clamoring for answers, which just feels so hopeless, could that be what we offer our society? Could our answer be so countercultural and say, in fact, it starts with embracing how dead we are, how all we can do is produce death. No matter how hard we try, we can never create the type of world that we think should exist. And then out of that place, out of that death, would you meet us there? Because that is the central, encoded, encrypted message of the gospel. In the middle of a dead womb, there grows a child. In the middle of a dead Jewish man hanging on a cross, there is life with you for all humankind. In the middle of death, there is life. Blow us away with that beauty, Lord. Blow us away with your love. Give us courage. 
give the people in this room courage to look at the death, to look at how their hands cause death. Let it overcome them that even after all the wrong that they've done, after all the wrong I've done, with my best efforts, even then, you are offering them beauty and life and joy and abundance. That's what we need, Lord. Meet us in that space. It's in your name. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to this week's sermon. To find out more about the mission and ministry of Hope Brooklyn, details about Sunday worship and brunch, to subscribe to our other podcasts, and lots more, visit us online at www.hopebrooklyn.org.